Very nice to be with everybody tonight. It always feels, as I mentioned at the beginning of the guided meditation, it's, it's just coming together like this in an ordinary way is really sacred. And hopefully, although we're not in the same room, hopefully there can be a sense and feel free to take a moment. I, uh, I guess Nico Nicholas has pinned this video, but just sensing the 50 or so people that have gathered together. And we're really gathering together to reflect on these ancient teachings. We say they're the Buddhist teachings, but really the Buddha just discovered what we can discover and discovered. He discovered what we can discover and then he had this capacity to articulate that discovery. And it's really just human common sense to the nth degree. That's really what the Dharma, the Dhamma is. This profound, but very real, very ordinary understanding of what this is, this experience being known. And the problem isn't that it's complex, this awakening process. The problem is much more our habits of projecting onto this, this experience of the human being right here that we're having. We project, we project, and then we have these habits of projection, and then we have the confusion and the distortions that arise because of these habits of perfection. And then our actions start to arise out of these distortions. And then we have this world, these bodies, these hearts filled with a lot of tension and a lot of suffering and causing a lot of tension and suffering for those around us. We have the big mess of this world. So the real interesting question, the relevant question is, what are we gonna do in these troubled times? How can we show up? and meet our troubled hearts in a way that actually alleviates the confusion, the suffering, and especially the cycles of suffering, how in addressing my own suffering, I have these habits of you know, continuing the cycles of suffering, being complicit in conscious and unconscious ways of perpetuating suffering. Most of you know, I'm <clears throat> guessing, you know, you've read enough, studied enough of the Buddhist teachings to know that right at the very heart is this teaching, provocative, I, I think, on renunciation. Because it sort of fits with our dualistic sense of good and bad. And because we're pretty sure we've been bad, we have the sense of we're gonna be punished, and that idea of punishment usually involves having to give away what we like, you know, something being taken away from us. And so we, when we hear, you know, that at the essence, the Buddhist teachings are all about renunciation, it sort of fits in. Oh yeah, okay, I've been bad, I need to be punished, and then things will be fine or something like that. But that's not really what the Buddha means by renunciation. You know, we're not actually renouncing the world of experience. We're not renouncing our responsibilities as a human being, our responsibilities that come with being in relationship and caring about the world around us. We're not, we're not even renouncing ice cream and other sense pleasures. We're renouncing the causes of suffering. So who would have a problem with renouncing the causes of suffering? Seems to make a lot of sense, actually, to renounce the causes of suffering, the causes for that great burden, the entangling burdens in our hearts. Yeah, of course we want to let go. Like if, if we made it graphic, you know, and there was, you know, something in our shoe that was really bothering us, something sharp, we'd want to put it aside. If we were bundled with warm 
close on a hot, sticky day, we'd want to abandon the cause for being overheated. We'd want to put it down. So that's really an important place to start, like understanding what refuge is. How do we show up? Now, I'm not going to make any argument that these times are more troubled than past times or, or more troubled than the future times. I think it's pretty much a regular occurrence for us. Whether we know it or not, we might have a pretty comfortable, privileged existence. But I'm guessing that there are moments when you realize this heart is troubled and these times are troubled. So how do we show up? What's the refuge for these times, being a human being with a body and a sensitive heart and a thinking mind, a thinking mind that's been conditioned by human culture? What's the real refuge? So I don't know if everyone, probably not everybody was doing the guided sit, but I just invited folks, myself included, that for that short duration of breathing in, just to contemplate the reality, the possibility of being intimate without grasping anything. And then as I was breathing out, again, just in a sense, picking up that contemplation. Well, how about this willingness to be intimate, but also allowing, not grasping, not controlling for a few moments as I breathe out. And then as I breathe in, just, well, what would it mean as a human being right now, sitting here with clothes on, in a room, seeing, hearing, feeling sensations, aware of the activity of the mind and the mood, right? Just these ordinary things that the knowing mind can be aware of. What would it be to be, to cultivate, to value being intimate without adding the grasping, the reactivity? And even if there is grasping and reactivity or any kind of control, well then be intimate with that without trying to manage or control. You know, another way of saying this is not being in conflict with the conditions. There are the conditions, some of them may be neutral or even pleasant, but you know, often some of the conditions in the present moment will be unpleasant, unsatisfactory. And then what does non-grasping look like? And what would the alternative be to intimacy and non-attachment? So the opposite of intimacy would be distractedness and superficiality and not seeing clearly, not being so connected. So disconnection and the opposite of attachment would be attachment. And that, you know, that's our normal mode and it sort of swings back and forth where we have ignorance, disconnection and the attachment of wanting something to happen, wanting to make something the way we want it to be. And we have, you know, eventually we run into frustration because with that not being completely connected, not really seeing clearly, not really being intimate and thinking that I can bend the world, even my own thinking mind, let alone the conditions of the forces around me, I can bend it to what I want, make it the way that I want for any, you know, satisfying length of time. It ends up frustrating us. So then we go from being not so connected, not so intimate, and wanting to be done with it all. Like, forget grasping. Now we grasp in a different way. We grasp, grasp to be done with this frustrating, oppressive experience of having a body and having desire and having you know a mind, but not being able to get what we want. So now we're frustrated and we want to throw in the towel. We want to give up. You know, to the nth degree, that would that might look like suicide. Like get me out of here. 
I'm done. But more usually it means, you know, turning the TV on or eating too much or sleeping too much or any number of ways that we check out because showing up with a sense, uh, with an inspired sense that I can set in motion happiness has been, we felt, we feel betrayed, like it hasn't worked and it isn't fair and it's a setup. So not, I'm not interested in becoming happy. I'm interested in checking out, giving up. And if we look back through our life, if we reflect imperfectly on those around us, our friends, especially who we know well, we might just really clearly see how we tend to swing back and forth. Hope and fear, you know, you could call those two. When we're hopeful, you know, we lean in and a sense of like, okay, I know what I want. And when I get it, I'll be happy. So that's that becoming energy, attainment point of view. Like when I attain what I want to attain, things will be great. And uh, depending on how much privilege and good fortune we have, that might take us quite a bit because we will imagine that competence and our efforts and the force of our intention will really deliver satisfaction in a way that's actually satisfying until it doesn't, right? Because there's this thing called death and loss, right? And even illness that you can bank on is going to show up, you know, in its own particular way in our lives. And when it shows up, then it will be, it will be sort of a shock. Oh, I, I thought I had a plan. And then somehow I didn't think I'd get cancer or I didn't think I would get old or I didn't think this thing would go away, be taken away. So I guess my plan was a lie and that's the betrayal. And then, you know, we tend to swing toward despair and fear and There's a teaching um, associated with Milarepa, this patron saint in Tibetan Buddhism. He's a very famous character in the early years of Tibetan Buddhism when uh, the teachings of the Buddha went north up into Tibet. And um, it said that at some point his practice was really humming along, really gaining deep insight. And these beautiful wit beautiful wisdom energies and Tibetan Buddhism, they're depicted as feminine energies, Dakinis started to dance. There he is in his cave, having a lot of insight, a lot of clarity, a lot of continuity of awareness. And these manifestations of his own insight and clarity began to manifest, right? Because Tibetan Buddhism is very ornate in beautiful ways. And so these beautiful feminine deities, let's say, celestial beings are dancing there and chanting to him as an expression of the momentum of his practice development of insight. And what do you think they're chanting to Milarepa? On the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie awaiting. <laughs> now that would be a nice meditation to have celestial beings dancing around you or in you, throughout you, chanting in beautiful ways on the steep slope of fear and hope the demons lie awaiting. That's a very powerful pointing out instruction. And it's what would that, you know, arise out of? Well, it would arise out of our ordinary life experience when we have had moments of mindful awareness periodically and then with practice more and more often through daily life and during our sitting times. We're like collecting data. And what does that data show? That when we swing towards hope, it's a setup. When we swing, <clears throat> our mind orients with fear, it's a setup. Basically what life has taught us, if we're paying attention with 
mindful awareness is that fear and hope don't help. Hope is the idea, the projection that if I work hard, if I apply myself to gaining something, getting something, then I'll be happy in some kind of lasting or meaningful way. And the fact is, a lot of us, we have applied ourselves and we've even gotten some of the things we've wanted. And yet it really hasn't changed that grasping, that struggling to get. You know, as nice as the things that we've succeeded at, that we've gotten, have been, the heart remains tight, wanting more. And this is what really begins, if we let it, to break our heart open, is really seeing that our basic habit of going to hope and going to fear ends up leading to um, disappointment and that sense of betrayal. What is really betraying us is what we think will help turns out to not be helpful. And it's this movement from arrogance to humility. And it's not an easy movement for any of us. And some of us, you know, do it in a more gradual way. And sometimes others, you know, it's a big crash where we, you know, it's a hard fall from not even that we would call ourselves arrogant or other people would consider us arrogant, but known or unknown to us, the mind was arrogantly clinging to its views, pretending in a way that we're pretending that we're certain imagining that we're certain when we're not certain. And then when life delivers the facts that we're not certain, that what we thought was certain was not certain, then, you know, maybe if it's a heart fall, we're humiliated for a while. But eventually with practice, like just paying attention in this kind and persistent way, we actually cultivate a taste for that humility, for that knowing that I don't know. It's almost like we're appreciating the enlivened state of being a learner, knowing that we don't know, really supports this enlivened. It's really energizing to be a learner, to be on the steep slope of learning, where we feel like every day, often even through the day, we're seeing something we haven't seen before. You know, making connections about what supports suffering, what supports release. And here's how uh, the Buddha describes it. It's actually Bhikkhu Bodhi, some of you know, a very well-known translator and teacher, an American Buddhist monk who's been, was in um, Sri Lanka for many decades, but semi-retired now as a monk still here in the East Coast. Um, at a Buddhist monastery, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu just means Buddhist monk. So Bodhi is his man, monastic name. And this is a really wonderful small book that you can, I believe, get online still um, called The Noble Eightfold Path by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And in the section on intention and right view, the, near the beginning of the book, uh, he writes, When we see how our own lives are pervaded by dukkha, by this pervasive inability of the heart to be satisfied, that's really what uh, dukkha means. Whether we're having a really good life and those sort of you know, usual standards, wealth and health and belonging, or we're having a really difficult life, regardless of our particular location, there's something that's deeply unsatisfying about existence. When we see how our own lives are pervaded by dukkha and how this dukkha derives from craving, the mind inclines towards renunciation. So again, what do we crave? We crave becoming what we think will make us happy. And when that frustrates us, we crave to get out of here, to be done with it. 
It's too much. It keeps betraying me. I'm ready to be done. So that's craving, craving to become and craving to not want to be. And we have to see that that craving that seems so appropriate that it doesn't deliver, that leads to this humility. Humility is very much related to the experience of renunciation. Because in the deepest sense, what we're renouncing is fixed view. Like the fixed view that I know what I'm doing as a human being. And, and you can see how this really relates to our basic practice of mindful awareness. Because when I have a moment of renouncing, putting down that I know what I'm doing, the idea that I know what I'm doing, then you see how natural it is for a state of openness to arise, mindful awareness to arise. Now the mind is open, is aware. It's not pretending it knows what it's doing. So it's really in the state of open awareness, like what's being known, what's arising and being known. And persisting in that mindful awareness to begin to see how this thing we call my life works. Oh yeah, when this arises, then there's this next thing that arises. And when these things arise together like this, things start to get tight and heavy or when they arise and unfold in this other way, the heart becomes more released, more free. Ah, we start to connect the dots. This is how suffering comes to be. This is how ease and release come to be. But it really requires this exposure, this more honest exposure to suffering, to dukkha, to the unsatisfactoriness of hope and fear, the usual struggles. Because that naturally, organically brings about this initial renunciation toward humility. Clearly, I don't know what I'm doing. Right? So, and giving up doesn't make sense. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> right? And especially like even with Buddhist cosmology, even this sort of what we might imagine would be an exit ramp, killing herself or something like that. You know, at least as a myth, you know, that you just end up like those movies now, Groundhog's Day, which was done a number, I don't know, maybe even 20 years ago, I forget how long ago, but I think there's a newer one I, th I saw a review of that's out now, in the, not in the theaters, but online somewhere. But we have that sense that uh, whatever is unresolved needs re resolution. So this pattern towards hope and fear, this dynamic, there is a resolution. And the resolution is to let it have its effect, like to keep seeing it and seeing that it doesn't deliver and how that naturally, organically, it isn't like Mark has a great insight, but it naturally and organically leads to that movement towards humility and openness. And then what uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is going to say here, and I'll read the next few lines, is that these, it purifies, that humility begins to purify our motive, our motivation, our intention. So we're now, in a way, we're going to start showing up in our ordinary lived moments with different motives in the heart, different forces into action, into speech, into thought. Because normally our motivations are that greed and aversion. That's the, you know, those are the motivations that most of us are operating out of most of the time. But when we, we let dukkha, the truth that experience is unsatisfying when it's approached with becoming, wanting to become, wanting to get, wanting to attain, wanting to be done with, wanting to get out of here. When we let that be our teacher, it leads to renunciation of any idea that I know what I'm doing. And, and there's a sense of openness. Now, this is something that's going to happen tens of thousands of times. Maybe 
one time will be sort of more profound, that it's a repeated pattern. And uh, so what Bhikkhu Bodhi says here, um, <clears throat> the mind inclines to renunciation, to abandoning craving and the objects to which it binds us. Then when we apply the truths in a nagalous way to other living beings, the contemplation nurtures the growth of goodwill and harmlessness. So when we see, have a moment or moments of seeing how we've been pursuing hope and fear, thinking that it's gonna deliver, moment of seeing that clearly leading to renunciation, of all those fixed ideas that I know what I'm doing and feeling the initial release of non-craving. Because now at least I'm not, I don't know my way yet, but I know what's not the way. Greed and fear, right? So the heart's released from that at least. And then it, it's like we recognize, oh, this is what the whole world's doing. And you see, this is the birth of kindness and compassion right here. When we realize, you know, the inclination to go back, the hope and fear, to struggle, the sort of egoic struggles the, of, you know, wanting to get and wanting to get rid of, orienting around our likes and dislikes as if that leads to a lasting happiness then we see our own inclinations and the inclinations and everybody around us and it breaks our heart open and we have kindness right the goodwill we see that like ourselves i'm reading again we see that like ourselves all other living beings want to be happy and again that like ourselves they are subject to suffering right because with that ordinary and appropriate desire to be happy, they think by chasing my likes, avoiding my dislikes, I'll get something that's satisfying in a lasting way. And we see that isn't true. And so we, we want to um, yeah, take care of everybody. We see that like ourselves, all other living beings want to be happy and again, like ourselves, they want, they are subject to suffering. The consideration that all beings seek happiness causes thoughts of goodwill to arise. The loving wish that they be well, happy, and peaceful. The consideration that beings are exposed to suffering causes thoughts of harmlessness to arise. This profound valuing of not harming, not wanting to contribute not wanting to think or speak or act in a way that's gonna promote this. I think about this in terms of, um, you know, just simple things like alcohol consumption. And I know this might be a little bit uh, provocative for some of you, but it's just an example like uh, I, you know, I haven't, I don't really drink, haven't for many decades and uh, I'm guessing, you know, I don't really know. I'm guessing I could be one of those casual drinkers. I like beer, I like wine, I like the taste, I like the feeling of getting a little buzz like so many of us do. But it's sort of like, partly I, I recognize that when I have that nice feeling, I want more of it. <laughs> it doesn't end with, you know, I'm not completely satisfied with this one gulp or the second gulp or the third gulp. I always wonder if the next gulp is, will make it even better, right? So that's just a normal pattern around sense, pleasant sense experiences. But the other piece of it too, this, this um, motivation of kindness and compassion, compassion is really the same as this harmlessness that Bhikkhu Bodhi's writing these motivations really, they, like I realize that if I consume alcohol, it makes it seem more justified for others. Not everyone can refrain, restrain themselves, right? So it's, a, it's, it's like an act of kindness. Well, 
yeah, I could have that nice sense experience. It's not really going to lead to any kind of lasting satisfaction. It will be nice for a while, and then it will be over. I'm not denying the sort of ordinary sense pleasure of having a nice drink and feeling that kind of euphoria in the body and the mind that comes with, you know, a little bit of alcohol in the system or, you know, or joint or whatever people's, you know, drug of choice. Mine, I still have a few. Green tea is one, which, you know, when you get sensitive, that's a pretty nice high, actually. <laughs> and, uh, but it's sort of like that, oh, but I could let it go. And then I, there's that sense of supporting the happiness of people around, around me, not adding to any cause of suffering, at least in this little window where people, you know, who might have in their personality and their biochemistry, um, a real tendency towards addiction with alcohol or whatever, like at least I'm not contributing. And that actually, that motivation of kindness and non-harming, even in this ordinary little way, feels really good. It's actually deeply stabilizing for me to take this on. on. And it's the same way with any kind of action in the world when it's done with this motivation. Like I know how easy it is to live in ways, to choose, make choices in ways, that cause harm, right? So out of kindness and out of this deep valuing and not wanting to be complicit with my own suffering or the suffering of others, I'm gonna choose this other way. And this is really important to understand like how we show up in troubled times with our troubled hearts, to recognize that kindness and compassion isn't just like one more burden. I mean, it's already a troubled time. I already have a troubled heart. And now you're ask, asking me to be kind or the Buddha is asking us to be kind and compassionate. I can't even you know, find time to wash my clothes or do the dishes or address my to-do lists or let alone become an activist and do these things that the world is really calling us to do and I have to be kind and compassionate. And this is a, a really important thing, you know, hopefully it's coming through in the talk, but we wanna understand that this whole awakening process, it may, we may interpret it as something I have to do, but that interpretation should be used only if it's helpful because it's not actually true in the deepest sense. The awakening process is a natural and impersonal process. And when the supporting causes are there, as the Buddha says in one of the discourses, it inclines, the mind, the heart inclines toward Nibbana, this unconditional freedom, in the same way that the Ganges inclines toward the ocean. Can't be stopped. Now, the same is true, unfortunately, for suffering. Like when the supporting conditions are there for suffering, the opposite of intimacy and non-attachment, disconnection instead of intimacy, attachment instead of non-attachment. So when that habit energy is operating, the mind isn't seeing clearly, and partly because of that is acting as if attachment, getting tight, being controlling, giving up, you know, all those expressions of attachment as if it's going to lead to lasting happiness, then the heart is going to incline toward heavy, difficult, painful states in the same way that the Ganji River inclines to the ocean. You know, we don't want to sort of just presume that, you know, uh, over the course of this life or many lives, my heart will naturally gravitate towards more expanded, beautiful, liberated states. That's what we call wishful thinking. There are many natural processes like vortexes that our heart can gravitate toward depending on circumstance and, and just habits. And now that we're aware 
there should be very, uh, an appropriate sense of danger. Oh yeah. Like I can really see in my own psychological, emotional conditioning, I can really see in a way that sort of wakes me up. Like I could be doing things and living in ways that would dig the hole really deep in terms of reinforcing patterns in my own heart of suffering. And, the, and also then that would probably cause a lot of people around me to suffer too. I see that. I see those addictive tendencies. Those tendencies to when I'm hurting, to want to hurt others. Ever notice that one? That's like you can bank on that. When we're really hurting, for some strange reason, it seems to make sense to make people around us hurt too. And when we're not aware of that, then we'll just act out that habit, that tendency in our mind. Or the, ha the habit that when we're hurting, having something pleasant will make the hurt go away. And then that makes us really addicted to pleasant sense experiences because we think it's going to make the pain in my heart, the despair or whatever it is that's there, you know, old wounds, emotional wounds, will make it go away because I'll have ice cream or I'll, I'll have a partner that says they love me. But it doesn't work because it doesn't really get at the root, that kind of deeper hunger, deeper existential uneasiness in our hearts. And I really like um, emphasizing that both the process of suffering, samsara, suffering leading to more suffering, right? And the process of awakening, both are natural processes. Because then, it, you see it again, it really promotes our interest in the stability and continuity of mindful awareness being present. Because when we realize that having a body and a mind makes me susceptible for these repeated patterns of suffering and also makes me capable of aligning with a movement towards release and kindness and compassion and liberation. Well, I really want to pay attention now in order to not fall under the gravitational pull of those habits of greed, anger, and delusion, and to begin to discern, to sense, however faint, the gravi gravitational pull towards what is wholesome and liberating. And that makes all the difference. Because without the element of that stability of mindful awareness, then what we gravitate towards, what we come into allegiance with will be based on habit, not based on what's actually healing and liberating. We're just destined to do what we've done before and then get the same results we've gotten before. And that's why there, there's that term, samsara, the repeated patterns of suffering. Suffering, the, the actual experience, psychological experience of suffering distorts the mind so that our way of perceiving and then because perception is off, we're misperceiving because of the distorting effects of suffering, then we think based on distorted perception. So the thinking is off, like thinking that ice cream will actually make me happy in some lasting way. And doing that enough times begins to distort our, our deeper views or uh, ways of believing, understanding, like understanding itself becomes distorted. Even you could say the character of the mind, the ba basic structure of the thinking mind gets distorted. Like they say in neuroscience that neurons that fire together, wire together. So if we're misperceiving and then thinking based on those misperceptions, it's eventually going to be hardwired 
into the personality. That's what we, in Buddhism we would call the view. It's harder to uproot the view because in a sense it gets hardwired. And I say this only to evoke a sense of, oh yeah, I want to take care of this predicament because we're already hardwired in a lot of ways, but we have this very powerful tool, the stability of mindful awareness, present moment awareness, and what it initially reveals, as I was talking about earlier tonight, is the enormity, the pervasiveness of dukkha. This nothing really works. We see the pattern of gravitating towards hope. We eventually notice the inevitable disappointment when what we hoped would make us happy, even if it delivered a lot of <clears throat> pleasantness for a while, doesn't really lead to the full release, the complete and full release of the heart, which is what the mind, the heart actually intuits is possible. So we feel like betrayed and we give, want to give up. And that doesn't work either. Nothing, neither of those two poles deliver. So eventually we're willing to be a student, a learner that renunciation of fixed views, the renunciation of the idea that I know. And then we listen. And if we're fortunate, we stumble upon some wise teachings, like from the Buddha, for example, and we check it out. We don't believe it because fixing on the ideas, the teachings, the practices don't help. But exploring them and developing our own self-reliance with these teachings and confidence and see, oh yeah, when there is stability of awareness, it's so much easier to see how hope isn't helpful, how fear doesn't help. It's so much easier to see the pervasiveness of dukkha and to begin to care about myself and others. And then to be in the world through these motivations of renunciation, kindness, and compassion. So in the Buddha's understanding, you know, when there is continuity and stability of present moment awareness, one of the telltale signs of some momentum in practice is more and more your activity in the world will be motivated by the intention, the motivation of renunciation, which means generosity or non-stinginess, contentedness with what you have, the capacity to like, oh, this traffic, I'll let go of needing to be at work on time. I wanted to be at work on time, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So I'm going to drop that idea, that fixed idea that I need to be at work on time. It's going to be what it's going to be. That's what renunciation as a motivation is. So we live with just these three motivations, the capacity to move into the moment to respond to the moment with renunciation, with kindness, which is just that wish for that friendly wish of goodwill. Hey, there's a lot of suffering, you know, and I care. And the last is related to the kindness, which is, <clears throat> so I'm going to be really attentive <clears throat> so that I don't contribute, don't plant seeds for my suffering or anybody's suffering. I'm going to be really attentive. This is a passage from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses, and it's translated by Gil Fransdahl. It's right at the beginning of the Dhammapada, very famous passage. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, Right, corrupted by greed and hatred. And suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All we experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a shadow that never leaves. Now this is, this is sort of an interesting teaching and definitely, definitely not something to fix on. 
like this is some metaphysical truth. It's really something to explore in our practice. Because if we fix on it, then we're going to expect results. Okay, I think I like the other one, you know, speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness will follow. And then we like speak and act with a peaceful mind and then we're looking for the happiness to follow. But that's not the motivation of peace, the peace of non-grasping. That's really the tension of wanting a result. So it won't work. So what that means is we, the, we only, as a human being, from the Buddha's point of view, which is a real naturalistic, elemental point of view, just a phenomenological point of view of the human experience, all we have rights to are planting seeds, right? We can be relating in ways that are planting seeds, laying down tendencies, toward release or tendencies toward contraction. If we relate in the moment with hate, with greed, we're planting seeds for suffering. But you may see somebody acting in a very greedy way and then good things happen to them. And they're going, the Buddhist teachings are broken. You know, that person was a jerk and they still, you know, God didn't punish them. That Lightning didn't come down and strike them for being, you know, bad, self-centered or whatever. So what's the, what's the deal with karma? It's not like that. It's like all we know is sort of the general. So it's, it reminds me a little bit of quantum mechanics. Now, I'm not an expert of physics, in physics, but, you know, they say that they can't, they can't, they can only say things in terms of probabilities. So we're just, karma's a little bit like that in the sense that we're setting something in motion, but there's a lot already in motion. So I might be planting really unwholesome seeds, seeds, tendencies, setting emotion tendencies that are absolutely not going to be supportive of happiness, but instead are going to be supportive of contraction. <coughs> but that doesn't mean the next moment's going to be terrible. It just means there are more of those seeds in that direction that have potency, right? Because the impression is right here in the mind stream, in the heart. And the same with wholesome uh, impressions that are left. This is from uh, <clears throat> an article by Gil Fronstel on karma. He's a wonderful teacher in the West Coast um, and also a Buddhist scholar. And uh, Gil here writes, first he quotes the Buddha, what I call karma is intention, right? So karma just means action done with intention. A thought that we think intentionally leaves an impression in the mind, in the heart stream. Words spoken done intentionally leaves an impression, right? When we say impactful words with real identification, there's something left over in the mind, in the heart. We, we can actually notice it if we're sensitive. And certainly if we act, do a some deed with intention, it leaves an, an impression. So he writes, the present moment is partly the result of our choices in the past and partly the result of our choices unfolding in the present. Our experience of the next moment, the next day, the next decade is shaped by the choices we make in relationship to where we find ourselves right now. Intended acts of body, speech, and mind have consequences. Taking these consequences into account offers important guidance in our choices for action. So this is what I meant by that initial act of renunciation from our fixed ideas that I know what I'm doing to the opening and openness of knowing that I don't really know. What I thought was true doesn't seem to hold up in my experience. So I'm gonna pay attention. And by paying attention, we come to this beginnings of seeing what actually 
intuitively leads to release and what seems to actively directly lead to suffering. So non-greed, renunciation, non-stinginess, generosity, contentment seems to be planting seeds in the direction of release. Greed, right, lust, makes the heart tight, causes problems. Anger, whoops, anger, you know, causes problems. Kindness doesn't. Justifying harm, justifying oppressive behaviors, taking advantage, using the power we have over others, makes things tight. Just try it. Because we're going to, we have these habit energies, so we're going to act out greed, hatred, and delusion. So we might as well let them be teachers, teaching us that when we're motivated in these ways, things get tight. So not caring about causing suffering, see if it makes your heart tight, really being sensitive, really valuing non-harming, compassion, really wishing to alleviate suffering and the ways that we might be complicit and initially unconscious of how we might be supporting the suffering of others. And then doing that careful work of seeing how suffering gets set in motion and undoing that. What does that feel like? I might feel really good. Like in terms of, as a white person, you know, getting interested, now instead of thinking, oh, there are people out there who are racist, how is this mind, this heart conditioned around race? How might the way I'm living, the choices I make, what I don't say, how might that be contributing to criminal justice systems that are oppressing people? So just to be curious, because it seems like a lot of work, it seems messy, but is it liberating? And that's what we really want to discern about this distinction between what's unwholesome, greed, hatred, delusion. Delusion just means not seeing clearly, not being connected. And renunciation and kindness and this deep value of non-harming. All arising because of clarity, seeing things as they are. And this is what's really going to allow us to show up in the world. You know, there's really no way to um, show up in our world if, we, if we're just acting out our, the usual suspects, uh, the habits of greed, anger, and delusion. And we see this a lot. Like we may correctly assess that something needs to be done, but our repertoire remains the same. We have greed, aversion, fear, and distraction, denial, delusion. Well, we're not really gonna be able to show up. So there always has to be this first initial step. I care, but I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm willing to be a student. And moment by moment, we're discerning again. Oh yeah, this is what greed, hatred, delusion, anger, fear, aversion sets in motion, tension. And the seeds for suffering for myself and others. Oh, contentment, kindness, compassion, clarity. These, these qualities, these motive qualities set in motion something else, something that feels in the direction of the deepest healing and unburdening of our hearts and justice. I love that quote. Some of you probably have heard it from... Uh, Cornell West, where he says, justice is what love looks like in public. I don't know if you know uh, Cornell West. I think he's maybe teaching now even at Harvard. He's had an interesting ongoing relationship with Harvard over the many years. But he's a philosopher and uh, African-American leader, activist, public intellectual type uh, pundit. And uh, he, he was interviewed recently, maybe you saw it, with Anderson, by Anderson Cooper, um, uh, shortly after the funeral for George Floyd. And Anderson, Anderson Cooper asked him about uh, what that was like for him. And 
he first said, uh, you know, just the, how broken he felt, you know, just the, the weight of uh, what he was feeling at that time. And then he went on to talk very powerfully about the, what he sensed at that funeral and what he sensed generally in, uh, in the African-American community is this capacity, having been oppressed for 400 years and the ongoing ignorance and oppression that continues today and this capacity for love. And he, he was just doing this beautiful riff about what he senses, sees in the black community. Um, and Anderson Cooper started to tear up at that point. And I'll just read what uh, Cornell West said then. He said, we, we cry because we care, my brother. We are concerned. We cry because we aren't numb on the inside. We don't have a chillness of soul. We, we cry because we connect. But then we must have a vision that includes all of us. We must have an analysis of power that's honest. We always need to connect police power and street crimes with White House power and Wall Street crimes. We need to honestly analyze power in terms of greed, especially at the top, and then the greed in us, the gangster in us, because we are all wrestling with this day to day, and that's why we need each other. Courage and fortitude are what's necessary. They are the backbone. We don't need lukewarm folk. We don't need summer soldiers. We need all season love warriors. <laughs> That's a beautiful line. Can we be that? <laughs> That's the question. Yeah, so that's really a beautiful aspiration to be an all season love warrior. Like when, we, when we've done enough work where a lot of the time in our life, we're pretty clear. We're, doesn't mean we're not acting out greed and hatred in moments, aversion and fear, but we're not long confused. We're not really pretending we're helping anybody. The force of our habit may carry us initially at least for some moments in being angry or being aversive or being full of fear. But, but even then, it may not be the stronger quality in the mind, but even then there's some understanding, oh yeah, honey, this is not helping. I wish I could stop it. It's already gotten out of the, you know, fence. It's running wild, this greed, this hatred, but I'm not pretending it's helpful. And already that's that motivation of compassion. Oh yeah, this is how suffering happens. That's what breaks our heart. We see it in ourselves and we see it in others. Oh yeah, this is not helping. It's already turning the corner when we have compassion for our own ignorant motivations, our own unhelpful motivations. And this is, you know, I think how we really show up at this time, you know, where we're, you know, just any number of difficulties moving. And maybe it's in some sense always like this. We just pretend it isn't, but it seems very rich right now and totally in need of people who are willing to get to that place of realizing, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm willing to pay attention. I'm willing to stabilize my present moment awareness and really discern in real time, not handed down from on high, but learn real time what's unskillful and what's skillful. So that I have this independence, this self-reliance, and it really builds it's like that momentum of confidence begins to build. And that's what really transforms our view and understanding is the building of that confidence, that faith energy, that this heart is capable of knowing the difference between planting seeds that lead to suffering and planting seeds that lead to release. And this is not, there's no distinction be between the work I'm doing for my own well-being and the work I'm doing for everybody's well-being. That somehow thinking the two aren't connected or they're different is really not understanding what well-being is. Thinking that 
I could do something that takes care of my well-being without caring about the well-being of others, right? See, that would have to involve greed, which is a cause for suffering, or disconnection, which is a cause for suffering. So when we really open to that place of humility, we see that the renunciation, the generosity, the kindness and compassion is a way of taking care of everybody's well-being. And that's what turns out to be liberating. So let me leave it here. And so nice to be with everyone. Hope to see you down the road somewhere. And uh, there's lots of programs at Common Ground. I know you have a wonderful center in Cambridge, but if you want to connect, just check out our online calendar and join in for any programs you'd like. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.